Take your Bibles this morning to the easily found book of Amos, chapter number 6. Amos is, I believe, nine chapters, so it's not uh, one of the more difficult of the minor prophets to find, but really, if it's a minor prophet, I'm doing the Baptist shuffle anyway, all right? So that's where you take your thumb and you just do the karaoke, and hopefully you see it somewhere in the pages like a flipping cartoon going across there. Amos chapter number 6 this morning, I took my wife's vehicle to the car dealership the other day to get it serviced. As I sat and waited on it for nearly two and a half hours, uh, I had asked them to do also an inspection. They came out uh, some two hours after it had been in the back. They came out and they said, well, we were able to get your car serviced, but we were unable to get it inspected because it failed inspection. I said, oh, really? It failed inspection. What's wrong with it? They said, well, your brakes are bad. You need new brakes before you can get it passed for inspection. I said, okay, all right. Well, I'll go buy those brakes and I'll put them on. Now, I can tell you, at the hearing that my brakes were bad and I needed new brakes, that was not news I wanted to hear, but it's news I'm glad I heard. See, there are times in life where we get news that we don't want to hear, but there can also be news that we are glad we end up hearing it. My mind goes to what many of us fear happening in our own lives. If a doctor one day looks at us and says, you have cancer. Nobody in this room wants to hear that we have cancer. But if you have cancer, don't you want to know? It's, so it's a weird sort of paradoxical moment where you hear news you don't want to hear, but you want to hear the news that you don't want to hear. There are many times this pulpit is used to encourage and uplift and strengthen, and by the way, that message is found all throughout Scripture. There are many strengthening things in God's Word, but today I wonder if maybe our brakes aren't bad a little bit. I wonder if we can come to Scripture with a seriousness and maybe admit that each of us, deep in our hearts, have to hear a message we don't want to hear, but a message we might need very desperately. Amos chapter number 6, we'll read beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, Woe to them that are at ease. In Zion. That's God's city. That's God's place of blessing. That's where God is, Zion. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. And trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations, to whom the house of Israel came. Pass ye unto Kelnah. And see, and from thence go ye to Hamath the, the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Do they better the, than these kingdoms? Be they better than these kingdoms? Or their border greater than your border? Ye that put far away the evil day, and cause the seed of violence to come near, that lie upon beds of ivory, and stretch themselves upon their couches, and 
Eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall that chant to the sound of the vial and invent to them themselves instruments of music like David that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the cheap ointments. But they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Now Amos is a unique man in Scripture because he is not originally a prophet. In fact, in verse number 1, the Bible tells us he is of the herdsmen. He is a shepherd, if you will. So he's not originally a preacher. He's just a man who loved God, who God called to deliver an extraordinarily difficult message to these people. He's a man who God used to bring a message of impending judgment if they did not repent. What was their big sin? Was it the sin of immorality? As is prevalent in many of the scriptures, as Israel goes through seasons of faithfulness to God and infidelity to God, and and sometimes their relationship with Him is compared to seasons of, of adultery as they are somewhat cheating on God, spiritually speaking. Was it immorality? No. Was it idol worship? As we see, even Moses goes up into the mountain for just a short time and they don't know what's happened to him. And so they say, well, we don't have a leader and we don't have anybody to carry us into the promised land. So what are we going to do? And they devise with Aaron a plan to make for themselves a new God, a a sort of golden calf. And, And they cast their gold that God had given them from Egypt into the flame. And by Aaron's own admission, he says, this is the God that came out of the fire. No moltening needed, no gravening image, no fashioning at all. We threw him in and he came out. Throughout Israel's history, they struggled with uh, idol worship and false gods. Was that the sin that Amos corrects them of here? No. Was it intermarrying with the heathen against God's will? See, God knew that if they were ever to be unequally yoked, to borrow a Bible term, if they were to ever marry outside of Israel, they would bring into Israel and introduce philosophies and customs and practices, as well as religious traditions that simply didn't belong amongst God's people. And so was it that they had intermarried with the heathen like King Solomon did, and he loved women of Egypt, and he loved women of Philistia, and all these women drew his heart away from God so that he's no longer serving God as the wisest man in the world, but he's looking at all of life and realizing it's all vanity. Is it idol worship? No. What is the great sin that the prophet Amos corrects these people of? He confronts them of. Listen. Prosperity. More correctly stated, the the absolute apathy and self-centeredness that resulted from the prosperity that God had given them. You see, the book begins in verse number 1 of chapter number 1, and it tells us that this is in the reign of King Uzziah. 
Amos is prophesying to a people who by and large are as blessed as they've ever been in their history. Things are going well. They've, uh, uh, they've gone to the desert places and hewn out new wells and, and they've uh, established the walls of Jerusalem and things are going pretty well economically and politically speaking. In fact, he was such a wise man that he even invented sort of catapults, if you will, war machines and placed them in strategic places around the kingdom. And he was a man who instituted a time, as God blessed, of great prosperity in the nation of Judah. As well as the Bible says, it is not only the fact that King Uzziah reigned in the southern kingdom, but there was a man by the name of Jeroboam who reigned in the northern kingdom as uh, Israel is now a divided kingdom. And in the northern kingdom, even Jeroboam's reign, being the first king of Israel, he, his reign is a time of great prosperity. And he goes and he, he defeats Moab and Gilead and, and parts of Syria. And he conquers them. By and large, both in Judah and in Israel, things are going great. These are the good old days. And Amos comes and says, Woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. See, the good old days likely aren't as good as most of us remember. But it's in times of prosperity and ease and comfort that we make mistakes. And we, spiritually speaking, grow completely complacent about what God may want us to truly do. I want to speak to you about the mistakes that we make in the good old days this morning. Number one, I want you to see, first of all, a deceptive comfort. A deceptive comfort. We see uh, Amos speaking of that in verse number one. He says, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria. Now, a woe, he's, that word means it's a stark warning against something. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. He's saying, This is a warning, a word of admonition. But the word woe does not truly mean woe. In fact, it's interpreted several different ways. In one place it means the word ah. In another place it means the word alas. The word actually really conveys an emotion about the following statement. So as uh, in Isaiah, the word is translated ah where it says Ah, sinful nation, a people both laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers. You understand the prophet Isaiah is saying the emotional turmoil that's taking place in my heart. He says, ah, ye seed of evildoers, a people laden with iniquity. It's an emotional statement being made by Amos here as he says, how did things come to this? Why are we here? God's blessed and yet we have to look at things with a, a, a seriousness and a soberness about us. And he says, woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. I remember several, uh, well maybe a year ago now, my son went through a pattern where anytime there was a, a canister of baby powder around, he thought it was his play toy. And we would be sitting in the living room and we could, ju- we would just be talking, my wife and I, and all of a sudden we would, our eyes would meet 
and we would smell Johnson and Johnson. We have not seen my son in some time. He's disappeared and he's eerily silent about what's going on, but we look at each other and just because of some of the evidences that our senses are picking up, we looked at each other and said, oh no, we go into his room and Thomas has done his best Picasso impression all around the room. There's Johnson and Johnson baby powder on the ceiling fan and on the walls and on the floor. And it's at that moment my wife used a word quite similar to uh, what uh, Amos is feeling here and what Isaiah is feeling here. And in her case, it was, what have you done? It's going to take me forever to clean up this mess. Amos is pronouncing here in the most emotional and sorrowful terms that he can how disappointed he is. More importantly, how disappointed God is about this state of things. Woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. And he speaks, first of all, about a false sense of security. Notice what he says. The Bible says, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria. Now this specifically relates to the kingdom of Israel. And it speaks to where they had their kingdom. It is the same mountain here, the Mount of Gerizim, that the the lady at the well, when Jesus passes through Samaria, that lady says, oh, I perceive that you were a prophet. Uh, Our fathers say that we should worship in this mountain. Well, your fathers say we should worship on that mountain. So now what she is saying is, the Mount Gerizim, uh, the Mount of Samaria, the one that we worship on, the one that we've built a temple in, Jesus, which mountain should we worship in? And the comparison is being made now between Mount Gerizim and Mount Zion. And, and here Amos implicates both of them. He says, woe to them that are at ease in Zion, the kingdom of Judah. Woe to them that, are, uh, that trust in the mountain of Samaria. That is the northern kingdom. That is the kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes that were not part of the tribe or the kingdom of uh, Judah. And both of these mountains are implicated in the term here, woe to them or that trust in the mountain of Samaria. What he's saying is because of the steep cliffs, they believed that their city was impenetrable. They believed that they were safe and beyond uh, human reach. They had so fortified themselves in the mountains and in the steep cliffs that they thought that nobody could ever conquer them. In fact, there was a time when a city attempted to uh, conquer these people and it took the king of Assyria three years as he besieged the city to finally conquer it. But they trusted in their city. They trusted in their walls. They trusted in their battle plans and in their strategies. They didn't trust in God at all. And they said, oh, look at all that we've done. And man, we have so much wealth and we have so much prosperity and things are going so well for us. Nobody even wants to walk up these mountains and shoot the first arrow. We are untouchable. And they had a false sense of security about themselves. We get that way though, don't we? Foolishly. I mean, we can go through Snowmageddon where 
a, a couple days of snow shuts down the state of Texas, you still want to secede? I mean, it shut us down. We had pipes bursting. We had electric grids shut down. I will say I enjoyed the neighborly aspects of that day. I enjoyed seeing people running errands for other people. I enjoyed seeing people going and get generators for elderly folks. I am thankful we live in a place where that still does exist to some degree. So I praise the Lord for that. But listen, we get this false sense of security about ourselves when in a moment of time, something can happen. By the way, uh, you know how our insurance policies say, yeah, we don't cover an act of God. In any moment in time, that act of God that your insurance does not cover can happen and it will shut down this country. Isn't it terrifying to think that a couple keyboards in Russia can shut down an entire oil pipeline? And basically hinder progress an entire portion and region of our country? Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. And, and, and you take security in your high cliffs and walls? You, 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 you think you've got something? Everything's good, everything's fine, the economy's up, the 401k is healthy. Woe to that person who takes confidence in themselves and in their circumstances. These people had a false sense of security, but they also had a foolish belief on judgment. Notice the Bible goes on to say, not only did they trust in the mountain of Samaria, verse number 2, Pass ye unto Kenah, and see, and from thence go ye to Hamath the great, then go down to the Gath of the Philistines, be they better than these kingdoms, or their border greater than your borders? The Lord tells the people here, through Amos, He says, hey, why don't you consider that kingdom to the east? And why don't you consider that kingdom to the north? And why don't you consider that kingdom to the west? Why don't you consider all these kingdoms and realize that at one time or another, they were the ones on top. Everything was good for them. They were the first in line. Nobody wanted to attack them. They were the superpower of the day. And he says, go look at them now. See, prosperity comes and goes. Things that seem so obvious and things that seem so certain in a moment of time can change absolutely. And verse 3 puts up and kind of uh, uh, puts it all in a compact verse here, what he's trying to communicate. He says in verse 3, Ye that put far away the evil day. He's saying you go to those cities around you and you see if judgment didn't come upon them. And now you sit in your pride and in your self-conceit. You sit there and thinking that you're so prosperous that you're not even touchable by God Himself. You sit there and you just look around a little bit. And I think if you'd evaluate all those kingdoms, you'd realize quite quickly that judgment does come upon the unrighteous. And now He looks at them and He points down His finger to them and He says, you think you're going to miss the day of judgment? You, you think you're special? Like preacher says, you got chrome toenails? You think that you're untouchable? He says, you keep pushing the day of judgment like it's never going to come. Listen to me. God's judgment is certain in this lifetime. 
God says, be not, con- be not deceived. God is not mocked. You're not making a fool of God. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If you're living a life of spiritual apathy and complacency, you are in denial of one of two things. You either believe that God is a liar because he says that he does judge the unrighteous. He does judge those that uh, perform evil deeds. And Christians living in a backslidden condition will suffer the consequences, not eternally of their sin, but temporally of their sin. And God will chasten you and bring you back to himself. If you don't think that day is coming, you, are, you either believe God is a liar or you believe he is neglected his fatherly duties. Have you ever been down to Walmart and seen a kid get right there to the candy section? Aren't you thankful the manager decided to put all the candy right there at the checkout stand with the kid hanging out of the basket? And you see a little kid there in that line and they start to freak out because mama doesn't want to get them a piece of candy. And there's a, I want my candy! And the mama's freaking out. She's trying to check out and they're like, it's not a swipe, it's an insert the card. And you're like, oh, give her a break. Somebody help this poor lady. You got one baby over there kicking the shins of the other one. You got the kid hanging out of the car. I want my candy! And you're thinking in your mind, if I was that mama, if I was that kid's parent, I'd show them a thing or two. Yeah. You think that you're a better father than God? God's not going to let bad behavior go unpunished. God promises judgment is certain in this lifetime. And listen, this is very important for all of us. Judgment is certain in the next one. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible says, it is appointed unto man once to die. After this, do you know the rest of the verse? The judgment. Judgment is coming. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you trusted his death, burial, and resurrection as the only hope for your eternal salvation, then you will not suffer judgment for your sins. I'm so thankful that my sins were nailed to the cross of Calvary and he has placed them as far from me as the east is to the west and he's buried them in the sea of God's forgetfulness. I'm thankful that I will never stand in heaven with a big projector screen with all my sins being cast for everybody because when the devil says, no, 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 he's an evil, rotten sinner, God says, what sin are you talking about? I have chosen to forget those sins. I am thy God. I blot out thine iniquities for mine own sake, he says. I have chosen to forget his sin. But if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you will stand at a judgment seat And on that day, all the works of your sins will be laid out before God. And there will be a book of law written and it will show every transgression that you've ever made. And the Bible says that even the great and the small stand before God on that day. No kings escape that. There's no secret service that can protect them on that day. 
You can't weasel your way out of this. If you are an unsaved individual, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will stand at what the book of Revelation calls the great white throne of judgment. And on that day, the judge will not be a judge of mercy. He will be a judge of justice. And he will implement his wrath. And you will be cast into the lake of fire, which the Bible calls the second death, eternal separation from God. So all I can say is this morning, would you please, in this moment in time, on this Sunday morning, if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you please accept His free gift of salvation? Would you come to me with the judgment, to the judgment of mercy? The one where Jesus Christ sits not only as the judge, but as our advocate. The one that He sits there as our intercessor and our mediator, as the atonement for our sins, as the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world so that you might have eternal salvation and so that I might have eternal salvation. And He's building for me a home in heaven. Would you please come to me with that judgment? If you would, all you must do is accept Him as your Savior. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you be saved this morning? Don't put it off. Don't delay. You do not know what tomorrow may hold. You're not promised one more breath. Would you please accept Christ as your personal Savior? See, in this passage, Amos is pointing out a deceptive comfort. But he's also mentioning here a detrimental concentration. Notice we'll go through these rather quickly because we want to close the sermon on time. The Bible says in verse number 4, he now speaks of the practices of these people, what they're focusing on, what they're taking pleasure in. Notice verse number 4, he speaks of a sleepy position. That lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves out upon their couches. Here we go. They're, They're pictured as being sleeping. You know what I've noticed in my short time on this earth? Not a lot of people get a lot done in a horizontal position. Plumbers are about the only guys. But, but really what Amos is pointing out to, what he's pointing to is an attitude of spiritual slothfulness. In their prosperity and in their extravagance, they were enjoying the pleasures and comforts that all their work had provided for them. And now they sit back on their laurels and they say, Boy, times are good. Let's just enjoy the good old days. He says, that's not what we ought to be doing. He says, not only he points out a sleepy position. Notice, secondly, he points out a stuffed condition. Verse number four. And eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall. This speaks of having an abundance of of food and of, of meat. That uh, phrase there, the calves out of the stall, speaks of how they are intentionally feeding calves, fattening them up, so that when they bring them for slaughter, things will be better. They're, they're literally feeding them out and slaughtering them. They have that many that they can plan out their menus. And please don't mistake what I'm trying to say today. This is not a sermon that is trying to make you feel guilty for living in America. This is not a sermon that says, we have a lot and so you must feel guilty. I watched this week as, uh, how many of y'all remember on the Little Rascals, uh, Alf Alpha? How many of y'all remember Alf Alpha? He had the little hair sticking up. 
I watched this week on a video, he's a Catholic, and he had taken with his family a vow of poverty. And he had decided to live a vow of poverty so that he might earn his way to heaven. Though admirable, unnecessary. I'm not here today to tell you that you need to take a vow of poverty, that you can't enjoy the things that God has provided for us in this land. What I am saying, though, is sometimes we are so extravagant that it breeds within us a spiritual complacency. We become so focused on the here and now, we forget that there is a such thing as the sweet by and by. We become earthly-minded and carnally focused so that the kingdom of heaven is nowhere on our radar. And all of this is because of our materialistic selfishness. I'm thankful that in America, my wife plans our menus by the week instead of by the day. But that does not mean that my spiritual life should not still be lived in a manner where I should still pray a prayer that says, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. You see, he points out a sleepy position and then a stuffed condition. I want you to see, thirdly, a singing disposition. Notice in verse number 5, these people that chant to the sound of the vial and invent to themselves instruments of music like David. Now, historically speaking, chanting doesn't really belong amongst God's people. The chanting of incantations, of of phrases, we don't just chant things. In fact, you read the Psalms, they are some of the most beautiful poetry ever produced by human authors. You say, well, they weren't produced by human authors. At least you're right theologically, amen? The Psalms are not just a bunch of mindless chants. They are beautiful and deep and helpful and instructive and encouraging. The people of God sing deep songs, not not surface-level phrases. These people are chanting things. They have borrowed worship concepts from false deities and have introduced them into the worship of, of Almighty God. And then it goes so far as to say that he compares their... They've, they've invented new instruments like David. The implication here is that you have... Uh, You have instruments like David, but your songs are not like David. You see the difference. He's saying you're inventing these instruments and you're trying to produce what David produces, but you're unsuccessful. David, known as the sweet psalmist of Israel. David, known as the one who could take a harp and comfort King Saul. David produced godly, helpful, encouraging music. And here God is saying... You're borrowing concepts from the world and introducing them into my worship. These two don't belong together. Listen, there are some very pertinent applications if you will just allow your mind to make them today. As the church looks more more like Branson, Missouri and more like uh, 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 Broadway now than it ever has before. You say, Brother Andrew, why don't we allow drums on the stage? Because God's music ought not be like the world's music. Is a drum beat sinful? No, the anchor holds. Did you hear that? Drums aren't inherently sinful. But the point is, at least we take a stand somewhere where we say, God's music ought to be different. God's music ought to sound different. Have you ever considered that your music is not for you? You say, well, don't get on my music. Don't speak to me about music. Friend, these people probably didn't want to hear it either. Woe to them who are at ease in the Zion. 
Don't, don't talk to me about my problems. Don't talk to me about what I've got going on in my life. Don't talk to me about these things. What if your music is meant and designed by God to bring you to Him instead of push you away? These people were, had a singing disposition. And fourthly, they had a squandering action. Notice verse number 6. That drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments. This is a picture of excess. As a, How many of you have ever eaten cereal out of a bowl? My daughter Bailey makes cereal. And we've not taught her the proper way to do it. She goes, she's figured out a good way, it's not the right way. She goes to the cabinet and gets the largest bowl we have. She then goes to the pantry, takes the lid off the Captain Crunch or the Cinnamon Toast Crunch, and just pours that bad boy to the top. It may be a third of a box of cereal or a half of a box of cereal. And then she goes and haphazardly gets the milk out of the refrigerator, takes the cap off, and what I can only assume is she just flips that bad boy upside down till she overfloweth. She's got joy unspeakable and full of glory. And there she sits in the living room eating her cereal. She's so gross because she'll come back to it six, seven hours later and she's like, oh, I love lukewarm cereal. I'm like, ugh, ugh, ugh. When you start throwing up, your mama's going to have to deal with that. But at the end, she's got this huge bowl of milk, nothing but milk. What Amos is saying here is the people, instead of drinking wine from a glass that shows some level of discretion, they're just pouring it in bowls and enjoying it. It's not a picture of drunkenness so much as it is of one of excess. I mean, this is like going to Easy Mart and not being okay with the 32-ouncer or the 44-ouncer, but just going up to the 55-gallon drum. And that's where these people are. Prosperity had built within them such a false sense of security and such a confidence in their situations that they were enjoying their wealth and their affluence. They were enjoying everything with no regard for God at all. It's a detrimental concentration. Can I ask you, friend, what was the spiritual emphasis of your life this past week? Think about it. What was it that you focused on that drew you closer to the Lord? What was it that you engaged in that actually put you in His service? You say, Brother Andrew, I'm just living a life for the King. Okay, I get it. I'm all for living every day for God. But can you point to any impact you've had in recent memory of actually living for the King? We can just take one brief look at your credit card statement and see all the ways that you live for yourself. But yet we, tr- we struggle to come up ways that we actually serve God. Friend, I don't want to be accusatory here. I don't want to make you feel bad because, by the way, this sermon has chewed me up and spit me out and I have fallen before God and confessed my sin. Listen, have you actually intentionally focused on how you will serve God? Are we too worried with Amazon wish lists and restaurant reservations and vacation rentals 
Heavens knows, summer's coming up. We've got to know where we're taking the family. We've got our vacation for the next three years planned out, and yet we don't know how we're going to live for God tomorrow. Maybe our concentration is just a little bit off. Maybe our focus isn't where it needs to be. Amos speaks here of a deceptive comfort and a detrimental concentration. And then he comes to what I believe sums the whole message up. We're almost done. All these things you're focusing on. You have time to drink your wine from bowls. You have time to lay on your ivory beds. You you have time to make your music. But they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. That word affliction there literally relates to a broken bone. You know what Amos says by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Something is broken. Something isn't matching up. You have all this prosperity and all this resource, and you're enjoying your extravagance, but you are making zero impact for God. You're not at all concerned with the state of God's people. You're not at all focused on how God might use you in this day and time. You're not focused on the affliction of Joseph. What's sad is they're much like the church at Laodicea who, so wealthy and prosperous, they said, we are rich and increased with goods and we have need of nothing. And God says, but thou knowest not that thou art naked and poor and miserable and blind. See, the problem with wealth and prosperity is it blinds us to spiritual things. We have everything, so we need nothing. God says, oh, no, don't. You look at your life, you think you're okay. You think that that healthy checking account in some way relates to you, that I'm pleased with you, in some way tells you that I'm blessing you. He says, don't think that because I am concerned with the affliction of Joseph. Though nobody else is, I am hurting at the brokenness of my people, at the utter ineffectiveness of God's people. He says, I can't stand it. What's sad and we don't have time is chapter number four kind of relates to us some of the things that they were doing. The Bible tells us that they were oppressing the poor and they were crushing the needy. It tells us that they had introduced false deities. They had actually taken God's worship and applied it to false deities. So sometimes God's people took false deities and, or, and they went and worshipped them. But here, they take the Levitical law, uh, worshiping sac- or sacrificing yearly, bringing tithes once every three years. They, they applied that to calf worship. These people were utterly and spiritually broken. And God says, does anybody care? Or is it that everybody's just enjoying the comforts of this present world that you just take no regard for what's really going on. The sad thing is judgment had already set into these people, but they were too spiritually blind to realize it. God had withholding rain from them. God had smitten them with pestilence. God had even begun to kill some of their younger men, presumably in war or something else of the like. God says, I am afflicting you. And 
You're so focused on yourselves and you're so focused on your 401k and you're so focused on everything you've got going on that you don't even realize that God is actually chastening you. I wonder if maybe America is in the same situation. I wonder, we've, as preachers, we've said for years, if we don't turn this thing around, God's going to judge us. I wonder if we just couldn't open our eyes a little bit and see that God's already judging us. That judgment is not impending, it's already here. Something's broken in America. I, I, I wanted to convey this to you in some way. It disappoints me that our politicians talk about the oddest things as being the greatest struggles that our world faces. We talk about things like global warming, and now it's not global warming, it's just climate change. Well, I would hope it's changing from year to year. Maybe some, I mean, sometimes it's hotter, sometimes it's colder. I, I, just, I would hope it changes some. But our politicians, they focus on everything else, and they are like a grand magician. Look in this hand so you don't see what's actually going on in this hand. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, one in four children live in homes without any father. That stepfather, adopted father, or biological father, 25% of all children grow up without a father in the home at all. Our politicians talk about racism. They talk about economic injustices. You want to know what the number one contributing factor to all so, sort of social ills is? It's not skin color. It's your home. So if you grow up in a fatherless home, you are seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teenager. You are four times more likely to live in poverty. You are more likely to experience and abuse drugs and alcohol. You are absolutely more likely to commit a crime and go to prison. Our politicians talk about, oh, well, we've just got to give more money to more folks to fix all the problems. We've just got to educate. We've just got to educate. Or we could do what God did a long time ago and establish the home before he ever established the government and get back to God's plan instead of man's plan. It's not about a lack of money. It's about a lack of morality in the home. One in every four kids suffers this plight. It's estimated that each year, somewhere between 20 to 40,000 human beings Human beings, souls, are trafficked into the borders of this Christian nation. This nation. According to a report done by the State Department in 2018, the top three nations of origin of victims of human trafficking, and this is in order, in order the United States, Mexico, and the Philippines. This great country, the land of the free and the home of the brave, the one with a Bible belt that swings all the way through the middle, the one that says we're built on Christian values, is mentioned with absolute detestable nations as we consider that there are people literally being trafficked into, the, into this nation. You know why there's that many people coming in? Because there's that many people being abused in this nation. I'm not trying to rain on your parade. Maybe somebody today will wake up and realize something's broken. 
You say, man, this is a lot of heavy truth this morning, Brother Andrew. Somebody's got to say it sometime. Don't you want to know if there's a cancer? Don't you want to know if something's broken? It's estimated. Well, it's not estimated. Statistics show that in the United States of America, half of pregnancies are unintended, and four in ten of these pregnancies are terminated and abortion. Every single day in America, there are over 3,000 abortions per day. 22% of all pregnancies, not, not including miscarriages, end in abortion. We're a Christian nation. There is a church on literally every street corner of this town. And yet we sit back and we act like we're living in the good old days. We are, by all intents and purposes, at ease in our desire. Our churches have more finances and less fruit than any church in any age. Our buildings are larger and more full and less fluential than they've ever been in history. People come to church, talk about heaven, go into the world and live like hell. Something's broken. Am I the only one concerned that this is not just an America problem, but this very well might be a people of God problem? That this message was not preached to the heathen of the world, but to God's own people? I wonder if maybe we're not so busy enjoying the comforts that our work has afforded us and all the pleasures that this world has allowed us that we have totally become distracted from serving God at all. Our morality is now determined by our culture. Our entertainment is produced by the world. Our ventures are primarily carnal and temporary in nature. We are like the man who sought to fill his barns instead of being laborers in the field of our father. We waste our time living in the far country, and yet we want to come and sit down at the table with Dad. We are like the disciples who said, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere, anywhere you want me to go. I'll go with you, Lord. Just first, let me bury my father. Just first, let me go home and tell everybody bye, and we'll have a big party, and we'll say, hey, I've made a real decision for Jesus. I just wonder if God does not look down, and with the same emphasis, and with the same sorrow, and with the same emotion, He looks at America, and He looks at the state of our church, and the state of the church in America, and He doesn't say, woe unto them that are taking it easy in America. What's bad is worldwide missions have now begun sending missionaries to America. Friend, we have got it all wrong. For so long, Hollywood has vilified the guy with a cardboard sign standing on the street corner shouting, Judgment is coming! But I wonder at what point can we look at that guy and say, you know what, he's been right all along. We're so afraid to identify with the crazies of Christianity that we don't want to be that guy, so we have become so spiritually apathetic and ineffective for God. It is absolutely insulting that we would ever call ourselves His children. 
Look, if there's a cancer, don't you want to know? Today we are more focused on what we're going to have for lunch than we were this sermon this morning. We're more focused on what we're going to post on Facebook today. Woe to us that are taking it easy. We're so focused on raising the kids. We're so focused on getting them to ball practice. We're so focused on having the money for college. Woe to them that are taking it easy. We've got to get to work. We've got to run the rat race. We've got to get the promotion. We've got to have the nest egg. Woe to them that are taking it easy. I wonder if some of us today would not humble ourselves before God and say, God, would you allow me to no longer take it easy and enjoy the comforts of this land, but actually begin to be effective for you in this land? As I watch this world run hell-bent away from God, may we be a bright and shining light in this world so that when they see our deeds, they will glorify our Father which is in heaven. When we humble ourselves and realize that the cancer doesn't exist in America, it exists in us.